On March 8, 2022, while returning from an off-roading adventure in Baja, California, Mexico, I was arrested at a military checkpoint when they found my 40 caliber pistol that I had misplaced in my truck. I was arrested. For the next 58 days, my wife and family were manipulated, extorted, and lied to. This podcast is that story. Today is May 4th, day 58. Today, I go home. Breakfast is always served around 5 a.m. I get up. Rudy gets up. We're both going to court today. I'm pretty excited. Meanwhile, everybody else in the cell is asleep. I get changed and dressed out to my nice clothes. I'm nervous. I'm hoping things don't go sideways at my court date. For the past eight weeks, it's been nothing but lies and stories that have been skewed and people telling me that this is happening and that's happening and it always seems to be the absolute opposite. The cells are kind of quiet because everyone's still asleep. There's a little bit of noise from the guards and the typical activity, but it's abnormally quiet. And today it's actually a little cool this morning. It feels real early. I don't think I've ever been out of the cell before 7 a.m. Rudy and I are talking. He's wishing me luck, excited for me to be going home. It reminds me of the steak dinner we're gonna be having when he comes through after he finishes truck in school and we go grab a steak dinner. I tell him, man, I'm looking forward to seeing you on the outside with your trucking license and I'm buying you that steak dinner. So we get down to the lockup and this is where we get side-celled. We get put in a big space that's about 15 or 20 feet by 60 feet long. It's a fenced off area that's between two buildings. That's where they put the people that are waiting, whether they're transporting food in and out or something else is going on. If you're in the midst of moving throughout the prison, you get put in that side cell area. I've been in there when there's just a couple of us and I've been in there when there's 100 people. It's a fairly big space and that's where the sewer vent is. So it always smells great and there's no shortage of flies when it gets warm. As I go out there, Rudy says, hey, Bill, you know Ray? No, I don't think I've met Ray. Oh, yeah, we talked once before. Hey, what's up, buddy? Nothing, man. You going to court? Yeah. You getting out today, too, I said to him? He said, no, I've gone to court the past three months, and every time I go, they don't have a translator. I said, man, that's a bummer. In my court, my attorney brings a translator, and the court has their own appointed translator, so I have an extra one. They should just look in my courtroom and take that one. We joke for a few minutes. Then I realized his connection to another guy that's on the third floor also. He just got sentenced to five years. He told me the whole story about how they were coming across the border and he had this whole hidden compartment in the back of his truck. I told him, man, that's crazy that the border patrol somehow was able to see through this hidden compartment. He looks at me and says, man, I don't know why people can't just be honest. I said, what do you mean? He says, there was no hidden compartment. That stuff was just hidden underneath a blanket. I said, are you kidding? Yeah, man. He says, I don't even know. I don't understand people. Why is everybody going to make it sound so much cooler than it really is? 
I said, so what's the deal? He said, well, me and my wife are fighting. And I decided to come down to Mexico with this guy. And I knew he was coming down here, probably not to do some great things. But I had no idea there were guns in the back of the car. I said, man, that's a bummer. I feel you. I said, you speak Spanish? He said, no. I said, dang, man, you're Mexican and you don't speak Spanish? You're worse than me. I said, I'm not even Mexican and I speak some kind of Spanish. So we joked back and forth for a few minutes. I asked him what's going on at home. He says his whole life's falling apart. After he got arrested down here, his first attorney hustled him for about $10,000. That was all the money his family had. You see, him and his wife, they've got a business collecting and selling pallets. And that's what they do, just the two of them. He's got six kids, and this was completely a tailspin for his whole life. He regrets fighting with his wife. He regrets a lot of things. Most importantly, he's just disappointed that he's in this bad situation and his whole life has fallen apart at this point. I asked him how his family's doing. He said his wife got locked up. She got upset when he got locked up down here and she wasn't doing good things. She got in trouble and then she got arrested. And the kids got broken up between different family members. Some grandmas and grandpas and a couple of adult kids that took the burden of the last four kids at home. I can just see the look on his face and how crushed he is. I said, I hear you, man. I shouldn't be here either. He asked me, what's my story? I laugh. I tell him, well, funny enough, I used to be the bishop in my church a couple years ago, and now here I am down here. What'd you do to come down here? I said, I forgot I had my pistol in my truck. Oh, man, that's bad news. You'll be all right, though. You'll probably go home. I said, yeah, going home ain't soon enough, and it's cost me a mint of money so far. I said, luckily, as much as I'm frustrated with everything here, and I can't understand why I have to do this, why I've been here so long, I just know that some way, somehow, there's something I'm supposed to learn here. I said, you too, man. I know that God won't test you more than you can handle. He said, man, I appreciate that. He tells me about his wife and how he's frustrated with her. And then, all of a sudden, I turn into Preacher Bill. I tell him, yeah, I get it. It's kind of frustrating. But you know, the Lord asks us to forgive, so we got to forgive people. There's not a lot that we can do. And if we're following in the Lord's footsteps, it's important for us that we forgive. I know that you can withstand being here, man, as rough as it is. And I know God won't test you more than you can handle. He looks at me and he says, man, Nobody here talks like this. I wish you were in my cell, man. Well, keep talking, he says. So we continue to talk about God, faith, and what the world's plans are for us, or really what God's plans are for us. And the whole time I'm telling him this, I'm feeling a little bit like a hypocrite. This whole time that I'm sitting here thinking about this, I'm struggling to hold on to my faith. I can't understand why I've got to endure so much. I don't understand why this burden wasn't lifted off me. But nonetheless, it feels good to talk to him about scriptures, talk about God and things that matter. And I remember in my head, that's what he says to me. Man, nobody talks like this here. Everybody acts like they're tough and they want to talk about drugs and guns. Nobody talks about God in here. I said, well, I guess that's my problem for being an ex-bishop, right? <laughs> As I laugh and try to shrug it off, we talk about going to court. He tells me the last three times he's been here and it's resonating in my head that, man, this guy can't catch a break. 
talk about the detail story of the attorney. And his first attorney says, I need $7,000. So his family puts together $7,000. Then he comes back in a week later and says, I need a few thousand more. So he gives him about $3,000 more. That's the last time he saw that attorney. It was all the money his family had. Now, distraught and having no money at home, his wife gets upset and she gets in trouble. This whole time, all I can think is how my heart breaks for him. As I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, I've paid. I should be going home today. I hope everything goes okay. And we start talking about things that we're looking forward to by going to court. Yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to getting that packet of tuna fish. When you go to court, they give you a sealed packet of tuna fish. It's got a little wooden spoon in it. And it comes with a little bit of crackers. That might as well be a steak dinner when you're there. It's sealed, hasn't been cooked by somebody. It doesn't taste funky. So at least we look forward to some of the simple things. They shackle us together as we walk out toward the prison van. Before we get on the road, they had us change into orange jumpsuits so that we could be identified if something were to happen and we were to get out of the transport van. I remember thinking how weird this is as I'm shackled back and forth and we just keep walking through together, talking about God and family and how we got bigger plans than this and this is just a minor setback. And once all the dust settles and we look back, we'll realize why we needed to be here. Meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. There's no reason I had to be here. There's nothing I have to learn from being here. This is just stupid. And I don't know why God can't lift this burden for me. I've done so much. I've changed my life so much from when I was younger. I've given so much time. And I don't understand what I'm supposed to learn here. As we make our way to the booking exit, we get corralled with more prisoners. There's an older white guy in front of me. It's gotta be in his 60s, late 60s. I'm talking to him. What'd you do to end up in here? Oh man, I had a little joint in my ashtray. Really? And you're still here? Yeah, I don't have anybody's numbers memorized. My bail set at $100 and I can't get out of here. $100 and you're still here? Yeah, but I guess I'll just do my time. I questioned it. I said, for one joint, they put you in here? He said, well, I had some prior arrests and some trouble with the law before, but hopefully they'll let me out when I get to court. As we're all shackled together, we walk into the van, and it's not easy to get in and out of the van when you're wrist cuffed and ankle cuffed. So it's a little bit of an ordeal. We get in the back of the van, and they close the doors. All I could do now is listen. And as we're riding, we're still talking about family and all these things. And I remember thinking as we're sitting on those steel benches in the back, and I'm six foot. They've got the back of a standard van cut down the middle into two benches over the wheel humps. That means when my hips are back up against the outside of the van, my knees are up against the middle cage. There's no room. I mean no room. We're face to face with a couple other guys as we're in the back of the van. All I remember is just listening to everything, hearing the Mexican radio, talk back and forth to the courthouse. Everybody in this van's going to court. These guys seem to have this, I don't know if it's a thrill to hit the speed bumps as fast as they can. And these aren't gradual speed bumps. They might as well be driving right over a square block. I remember how hard it is and thinking to myself, man, is this just disrespectful that they're doing this? Or are these guys completely unconscious to it? 
Anyway, I'm trying to figure out which direction we're going. I'm thinking in my head, trying to make a map as we're driving, and I'm getting all turned around. I don't believe there's a straight street around here. I keep hoping something will happen, and the back door will bust open and I can just make a break for the border. But it's nice to dream. I guess soon enough I'll figure out how to get out of here. So as I'm telling Ray my story, we're talking, and I explain to him what's been going on with me and how the guy that was supposed to help me out actually had no contacts in Mexicali, and that we're actually using the attorney who's a friend of the nurse. I was really irritated about this whole thing and really irritated that I had to spend so many extra weeks in here because this guy was pretending like he was connected while my wife's been lied to the whole time. The more I talk about it, the angrier I get. But at least I think to myself, well, at least he's gonna have to spend the rest of my money trying to pay for my truck, get my truck out, get my personal belongings, pay my fines and all that stuff, which I'm assuming is all part of the deal. We pull up and stop. We must be at the new courthouse. I hear the gate open up. They get waved in. As we pull into that and the gate closes behind us, I can see through the front window what's happening, kind of. Now they open the back doors to the van and we're in a sealed off parking garage. For the first time I get out and it looks somewhat presentable. I thought, wow, this is actually like a finished building with concrete floor and everything finished. So me and Ray, since we're cuffed together, we get put into a cell. Another guy gets put into a cell. He's Mexican, but for sure he's a wedo. He looks like a white dude. So Ray and I keep talking, talking about God, faith, family, and all the things that are important. I'm wishing him the best of luck. As we keep talking, this other guy in the cell keeps looking at us. And I'm thinking, I know this dude speaks English. So I ask him, you speak English? He's like, yeah. Yeah, I noticed you kept listening to what we were saying. What's up, man? What are you here for? Oh, I'm here for Arma. You too, huh? Yeah. So what's your story? Of course, everybody's got a story. He says, well, I live in San Luis, which is another border city, not far away. He says, I do armed security. So always I've got my gun belt and things like that on me and I wasn't paying attention. I came across the border in the back seat of my truck. I had my belt with my pistol. As soon as I came across going back home, they stopped me, found my pistol, and now I've been here. I'm like, man, that's crazy. Are you from San Luis, Mexico? He says, no, I was born in the States when my dad was born here. I said, so has your dad got hookups or what? My dad's been trying, man, but it's hard. Of course, you know we had to pay some people to get out of here. I said, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. He says, I should be going home today. I said, how long you been here? This is about 28 days. Man, and you know somebody? Good luck, bro. Yeah, he says, I should be going home today. I gotta use the bathroom so bad. I go to the window. Official, official. Banyo? He looks at me as if he's irritated by my existence. Walks over, unlocks the door, takes me right over to the other side of the same cell that I'm in with an adjoining wall, and there's the restroom. So there I get to use the restroom. There's a piece of stainless on the wall instead of a mirror. I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe this. Please, God, let me get home today. Please don't let anything happen. 
still not feeling 100% and really sick to my stomach. I'm nervous about how this is going to go. I tell the guard I'm ready to go back in the other cell. So he brings me back over. I chill with the guys for a few more minutes. My court's at 9 o'clock. His court's at 10. It's almost 9. We're getting close. They knock on the door, mispronounce my name several times. I said, that's me. Let's go. They grab me. I turn around and tell Ray, hey, man, good luck, man. God bless you, and I hope everything happens for you at your court, man. Hopefully they got a translator. I'll be praying for you, bro. They pull me out. I walk into the courthouse. As soon as they walk me into another room, there's my attorney on the other side of a piece of glass, and we start talking. He says, good morning, sir. How are you? I said, I'll be better tomorrow when I'm home. He says, don't worry, you'll be home tomorrow. I said, I hope so, man, I hope nothing happens. So I start to ask him some questions. Hey, do you know if they've picked up my truck? Is all my stuff ready to go? I don't know, my friend. Well, I would like so-and-so to come get me. I don't want the guy from Cabo to come get me because I know he's a liar and I can't stand him. I don't know, man, I haven't met anybody. I'm just taking care of this. Meanwhile, I'm speaking through his translator. My attorney speaks no English. I said, everything gonna go good? He says, yes, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine today. Now my attorney leaves his room and I get up. The guard pulls me out. I go up two flights of stairs, assisted with a guard. And here I am back at that famous courthouse where everything went sideways the first time. There's a door to the left, which is like a holding room. And across that to the right, is another room with a piece of glass and some steel expanded metal through it so you can talk to your attorney. They put me in the room to the left, the holding space. The guard asked me if I want some water. I said, yes. He brings me some water and also brings me some tuna fish. There it is, that meal I've been looking forward to all day. They call me up to the window. My nerves are jumping like crazy. They open the door, walk me across the hallway to the other holding room where I can talk to my attorney. So now we're talking face to face. He says to me, don't worry, my friend, good luck. It's gonna be okay. Clearly, he can tell that I'm uneasy from the look on my face. He exits the other side of the glass, goes into the courtroom. The guard comes back, cuffs me again, now brings me into the courtroom. Now I have a guard on each side as if I'm gonna break into a sprint and take off someplace. There's no place to go, but it feels super weird. I've never been managed like this in my life. I've never had somebody standing next to me the whole time, waiting for me to do something. They walk me into the courtroom and they sit me down. Right now it's just me, my attorney, the translator, and the court-appointed translator that's across the room. I don't see the DA. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm hoping he's not gonna change the plan. I'm really concerned because I don't think you can trust anything down here. Here comes the DA. He's a little bit fatter than I remember. He's kind of a chubby guy with a shirt on that's about a size too small. Looks like he used to work out back in the day. He's got a bad flat top-ish haircut. He doesn't look like a very nice guy. I'm nervous just at the sight of him. All I can think is that I hope this guy doesn't switch gears and send me back. He sits down, starts preparing some of his documents. The translator is sitting between me and my attorney. He's even younger than my attorney. 
My attorney possibly can be 30, 32 at the most. The translator between us has got to be in his 20s. Both have braces. Weird. Here comes this honorable so-called judge. We all have to stand up as he enters the courtroom. Here he is with his N95 mask on super tight as he's 25 feet away from any other people. I really think it's so he could hide his face. We sit back down and I'm super nervous. The court proceedings begin and it starts with the prosecution side. As it comes back over to my side and I'm listening to my attorney, he's basically telling them the story all over again. We're reiterating how the gun was legally mine, it was an accident, and I'm ready to make a plea bargain. Now I have to plead guilty, which makes me even more nervous at this point. But this is part of the deal, I guess. As things go back and forth, I must really look super nervous. My attorney keeps looking at me and kind of looking at me with this look of hope and giving me a little thumbs up. And then they take a little break for a minute my attorney leaves over to the translator and the translator says, when everything goes good, he's going to look at you and give you a thumbs up, letting you know everything is fine. So this is so procedural. They're going over the VIN number of the truck, the VIN number of my Can-Am that's on the trailer. They're going over all these unnecessary details. They're basically rehashing the whole thing and it seems to be completely unnecessary. As they go back through the whole thing, my attorney talks to me for a minute and he says, I need you to stand up. I need you to tell the judge that you're sorry and that when you were in the cell, someone had told you to turn in the prosecutor that you would get off if you said that. So you have to tell them that somebody told you to lie about that. As I'm recalling back to my first court date, I can't remember thinking to myself, things went completely sideways because I did not bear my testimony how I was prompted. I was prompted at the end of my first testimony in my first hearing to close my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. I didn't. One of the reasons I didn't is they didn't take an oath when you started the court. I thought to myself, maybe that's too much. Maybe that's inappropriate. After the first court went completely sideways, I regretted not closing my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. I was so disappointed in myself. I asked myself, where was my faith? You know, if you probably would have done that, Bill, things would have probably been different. But here I sit today, and I'm being told I need to denounce everything I said in the first court. I thought for a second, that's the reason why I didn't say it. I thought and felt this fear inside me that if I'd closed my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ in the first courthouse, what would I have said today? Maybe that was the Lord looking out for me. So I stood up and I said, Your Honor, I'm sorry. I was told by someone in the cell that I was with, which by the way, I wasn't with anyone that I should say something about the district attorney. I apologize for saying such terrible things, and I'm sorry, and I pled guilty. Now I'm super nervous, because here I am, waiting for them to do whatever they're doing. And everything seems so procedural. They're going back and forth, talking to the clerk, all these things. They ask me to stand to be sentenced, and I'm absolutely terrified that this is gonna go sideways. They say, Mr. Vasilios, the court is taking your testimony in consideration. You understand the laws that you've broken and that you shouldn't be bringing these types of things into Mexico, whether by accident or any means. This is a serious crime that you've committed. 
because of this and your guilty plea, we sentence you to two years in prison. Because this is your first offense, we're going to give you consideration and put you on probation. You cannot leave Mexico for any reason, and you must keep in touch with your probation officer every 30 days. They finish their proceedings. I sit down, my attorney looks at me, gives me the thumbs up. Now court is over, everybody's adjourned. And my attorney says, now we go across the hall and we go to the other court where they assess the fine. The guard again takes me out into the hallway. My attorney says he'll see me in the other courtroom. I go to another holding cell in the hallway. I'm still in disbelief that I'm here and in the middle of this whole predicament. I'm hoping I get out of here as soon as possible. Now my attorney calls me into the room before we go into the assessment room where a different judge will assess the fines and penalties. He calls me into the room and we start talking. He says, well, when we get in there, just say that you're guilty and they're gonna assess the fines and then we're gonna find out how much. And we're just waiting for the guy from Cabo to come pay the fines. I said, he hasn't called you? No, I haven't spoken today. Okay, do me a favor, I tell his translator. I really need to make sure when I get out tonight that I have my wallet and my cash. He says something to the attorney and he just looks at me and says, I really hate to tell you this, my friend, but when you get your wallet, there's not gonna be any cash in it. I was really irritated about that. When I got arrested, I probably had about $600 in cash on me in my wallet. Now we go into the other courtroom. This one's got a female judge, and she's a lot faster and snappier than the last judge. We sit down, start to finish. This court takes about a total of 30 minutes max. Super procedural, real, rehearsed. Everything just seems like it's happened a million times over. They assess my fine and tell me it's 64,000 pesos, which is about 3,500 bucks. They said, because of the circumstance of me living in the United States, they're going to increase the fine to this amount and I will not have to do probation. That's a relief to me. My attorney assured me it was no big deal either way, but I sure as hell am never coming back to Mexico. So don't plan on seeing me every month. This court wraps up, I get out. My attorney says, congratulations, my friend. Tonight you go home. I don't feel like congratulations are in order. I'm still here, I'm still shackled. It's been assessed and my thoughts are, well, do I get to go someplace else? Nope. Right back downstairs to the parking garage is where I go, to the holding cell. I've been gone for about an hour and a half. I get back down to the cell. Ray's still there. I'm like, Ray, you didn't go to court yet? He said, no, nah, man, I already went. What happened? No translator again. I said, you gotta be kidding me, man. My courthouse had two translators. Yeah, they rescheduled my court date for June. Man, my heart breaks for this guy. I feel so bad for him because everything with him hasn't even began. And he just has to go back to that garbage hole of a prison for another 30 plus days. I said, man, that's terrible. I hate to freaking hear this. He says, no, man, it'll be fine. Anyway, man, let's talk about God some more. So we keep talking about testimonies, scripture, faith. 
and all these things, which is really the first time that since I've been here, I've spent any time talking about this other than with my buddy, Rudy. Rudy talked about how God has a plan for him, and I agreed with him. I believe God's got a plan for everybody, but I can't help feel so bad for my buddy. I just feel terrible for everything he's got to go through, and I'm somehow fortunate enough to get to go home. I have everything waiting for me back home. I didn't lose my wife. I didn't lose my family. I didn't lose my job. Everything's waiting for me. Meanwhile, as he sits here, everything has disappeared. He's really engaged in our conversation. And we're sharing experiences that we've had. We felt God in our life and things to that extent. We get back to the prison and here's where we get to do our strip search again. One last walk of shame before I go home, I guess. So they put us into these shower door-like cubicles. They're made with the cheapest shower doors you've ever seen and it's supposed to be like a private room. One false move and you bump that door and you're exposed to the world. So you take off your jumpsuit, your sweatpants, turn your socks inside out, take your underwear off, squat, cough, the whole deal. Get dressed again. And as Ray and I were walking back in, I said, that was fun. They said, yeah, it's always a good time here. When we walk in, we're catching dinner being served. It's about 3.30 in the afternoon. And since they're serving dinner, they send us all off to the side. So we get side-celled again for another 30 or 40 minutes. And I can just see the look in his face and he's beaming. He's just so excited to have these conversations and talk about God and do all these things. And he just continues to keep telling me that we should have been in the same cell together. After about 40 minutes in the side lockup, they call us to go to floor number three. I gotta go upstairs and start divvying up my stuff, figure out what I gotta do, who's getting what, and all those details. I still don't feel 100%. I'm still sick from my food poisoning. And I'm still thinking too much inside my head the whole time. It's four o'clock now. I've watched all the people that have come back to prison. When they get released, they get released about 10 o'clock. I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be the longest six hours of my life. As we walk upstairs, we're out in front of the cell block for probably 15 minutes waiting for a guard. They are in no rush to do anything. They're probably eating dinner. So guard moseys over and starts to let some of us in. As we go in, we get to the second door, unlock it. I'm in 305, he's in 303. I stop in front of my cell, since mine's first. All right, brother, I'll see you later. He walks towards the cell. Hey man, thanks for everything today, he says. I look in the cell and there's Winnie chilling on my bunk. It's his bunk that I bought from him, but I don't know why. Something about it just irritates me. All I wanna do is lay on that bunk and try to sleep for the next six hours till I go home. I come in and of course, everybody's asking, what's up, what's going on, what's up, what's up? Nothing, what happened? I got sentenced for two years. I'm going home tonight. Oh man, congratulations, bro. Some of my friends are telling me, Rudy and Eddie. And I can tell that it's kind of a bummer to Rudy and Eddie because we've made some good friendships in here. They're happy for me, but they're also bummed out that they're losing one of their buddies. I said, well, I want to miss you guys, man. Now the conversation turns to what are we doing with my stuff? 
As soon as I get back in and the guys that don't speak English are being told that I'm going home tonight, everybody puts in a request for their article of clothing of mine. Whether it's my shirt, my shoes, my sweats, whatever it is. Cocho, since the day I got in there, since the first day I got my Vans, asked if he could have my Vans. One thing that kind of irritated me is he never asked how I was doing. Never asked anything about me. He would only ask about my shoes. When can he have my shoes? Part of that irritated me a little bit. I don't know why. At least pretend like you care about my circumstance. But either way, the promise is a promise, and I gave him my Vans. He was super excited. He doesn't have any money. Everything he's got in here is a hand-me-down from somebody or another, and my shoes are pretty clean. They're almost brand new. The rest of my stuff, everybody's asking for, and I just said, look guys, I'm giving everything to Eddie. He can distribute it through everybody. I had one pair of flip-flops in there. Normally you wear your flip-flops in the shower. I couldn't wear these in the shower. They had a fabric strap on them. So if I took a shower, the fabric strap got wet. So they just stayed on the rack most of the time. When I was just chilling and not wearing shoes, I'd wear them. But they were a different set. They were really bright in colors on the sole and had a whole picture of a beach scene. And it said something to the effect of Rio Beach on those flip-flops. I remember looking at these flip-flops thinking, the last thing I'm leaving here with is these flip-flops. One day I'm gonna be sitting by the pool at my house wearing these flip-flops and remembering that I wore these in the same place over here. I'm taking these flip-flops with me. Well, as time goes on, Pilot says, hey man, can I have your flip-flops? I said, no man, I'm taking these with me. Then the consensus starts. Oh man, you're probably not gonna be able to take those with you. I doubt you'll be able to have those. You're not gonna be able to take those with you, Bill. You might as well just leave them here. I thought, that's really irritating. Yeah, man, they're gonna take them away from you, so, you know, might as well leave them here. I don't know, I'll think about it, I said. At this point, I'm getting a little short-sighted and I just want out. As I'm laying on my bunk, I'm trying to keep my curtains closed, or I should say my towels that I cut in half and made two curtains out of them. The volume in the cell gets to level 11 again and it's super loud. TV's going, you can't hear anything. And I'm thinking to myself, just hold on, man, for a few more hours, you'll get out of here. After dinner, when we got there, is when the notes start flying. They send what they call limousines to each cell. A limousine is a deodorant container with usually a note folded in it. And so what'll happen is cell number four will go to the bars and yell, a la cinco, a la cinco, number five, and they'll throw it. They'll hit your jug of water where it'll stop in front of your cell. You'll take it and you'll pull out any notes for number five. Well, they get the notes, they're passing back and forth, and usually one person's in charge of this for the whole night. They're earning their keep. It goes through rotation. But usually Cocho did it a lot because that's how he ended up getting food on visit days and things like that. So they send a note through and they're like, hey Bill, you got a note. Like, who's sending me a note? I'm thinking, that's weird. I opened the note, it's from Ray. When we were downstairs talking, I told him that I might talk to my attorney about helping him with his case and see what I could do. His note says, Bill, thanks a lot for offering your attorney, but I don't think I can switch at this point. 
My family's out of money, and I got to use who we got. But more importantly, Bill, thanks so much for talking today about God. I really needed that. God bless you, your family, and the whole world. Your friend, Ray. I take that note, I slide it in my binder. When I leave tonight, all I'm taking is my two journals and that note. I've got a couple other things where I've made some notes for the thought of telling the story in the future, and I've got them all together. I relax back on the bunk and start to think about how it's gonna go down when I get out of here. I start to think, I don't have my wallet, I don't have any ID, I don't have a car, I don't know who's picking me up. So I just start to focus on TV, I try to wait for the time to go by. Now it's nine o'clock, man. One hour left to go. I can't believe it. Talking to some of the guys, getting ready to go, because they should be coming around 10 o'clock. Everybody likes to tease you a little bit. Maybe they're not coming tonight, Bill. Yeah, yeah, funny. That's funny, man. Rudy says, hey, man, I want a postcard from Las Vegas. You better send me a postcard from Las Vegas. I said, all right, man, I'll send you a postcard. 10 o'clock rolls around. No guard yet. Up, oh, I hear some keys jingling. Here comes a guard. He comes down, passes my cell, goes to another cell, grabs somebody, and leaves. They usually come walking down with some sort of paperwork. I'm familiar with most of the guards. Not my turn yet. Now I'm waiting. We start talking. Pilot says, Bill, Take these, you're gonna lose your flip-flops. Take mine, they're broken. I said at this point, I don't care. I'm ready to leave. Who cares if I even keep these flip-flops? Yeah, you're not gonna be able to keep them anyway, Bill. They're gonna make you take some shoes and make you take some pants and all this stuff. So when you leave the prison, you take all your torn up clothes. The worst you got, because that goes into the general prison population that they let the guys temporarily wear while they're in a holding cell on the first floor. So reluctantly, I take my flip-flops off, and I said, Pilot, here you go, buddy. You now have the nicest flip-flops in cell 305. So I give him the flip-flops, and he gives me his dollar store flip-flops that are broken and chewed up, straps broken. I lay back down on the bunk, waiting. I'm nervous as all can be. I don't even know how this is going to go down when I get out of here. 10.30. No guard. Now one of the guys says, Hey, Bill, maybe they're coming tomorrow for you. That gets me really aggravated. Sends a spike of adrenaline through me. And I'm so annoyed right now. I just want to go home. Guard shows up. I've never seen this guard before. It's now 11 o'clock. He looks at the paper, struggles to pronounce my first name. Everybody kind of cheers a little bit in the cell. I turn around and I talk to Eddie and Rudy. I said, guys, can I do anything for you, man? Now that I'm on the outside, anything I do? Eddie looks at me and says, I don't know what you could do for me, man. There's nothing really. I said, well, next Sunday's Mother's Day. Can I send your mom some flour for you? He says, you do that for me? Absolutely. He says, well, if you can, can you send them to my baby's mama too? I said, no problem, man. So he jots down the address real quick on my notepad. I grab my stuff, say goodbye to all the guys, and now I start the walk. As I'm walking past the cell, K-9 
Killer Bill says, hey man, you out of here? I said, I'm gone, brother. All right, bro, take care. We go to the gate, dividing the two different blocks. I go to the next one. I walk past cell 12. He says, hey, Bill, what's up? Let me get your number before you go home. Sure, man, here's my number. When I get out, I'm going to call you. We'll do something. That's Ramon. Ramon and I talked a little bit about he wants to sell used appliances and take out things that I pull out, throw away here in Vegas in construction. I said, absolutely, man. If you can get to Vegas, I'll set pallets to the side for you. You could bring it back down here and sell it. He says, all right, man, cool. We'll be in touch. So I go down the three flights of stairs, anticipating how this is going down. I don't understand why they weren't here at 10 o'clock, but either way, who cares? I'm on my way out of here. So we go down the three flights of stairs in the middle of the cell block. When I get to the first window, this guard that I've never seen before who has my paperwork is talking to the girl on the other side of the cage. She says she doesn't have anything for me. He says, I got this paper right here. So they take me out into the lockup space, ankle cuff me and wrist cuff me. Now I'm wearing flip flops with no socks and the ankle cuffs are biting pretty good tonight. They point me out the door and start motioning me to go towards the front. As I'm walking between the two buildings, going up towards the front where I'm assuming I'm going to get released, I walk up with my paper in my hand and I'm going pretty slow. There's a guard in the space at this time and he's telling me to hurry up. I can't move that fast. I'm kind of irritated at this point. So I get up to the window where they intake people and people are going out. I show them a piece of paper and they say, we don't have anything. Go back and get the paper. Well, they don't say that. The guy next to me translates because they keep talking to me in Spanish and I'm like, I have no idea what they're saying. So now I'm irritated, turn back around and walk back towards the building where they released me. As I come out of the space between the two buildings, I have to go left about 200 feet to go back where the cell blocks are. As I'm walking, I'm hearing somebody yell from behind. They're yelling something in Spanish towards me. The guard in front of me tells me to turn around and look at that guy. So I turn around and I see a guy about 100 yards away on the other side of the yard. He's got four other guys with him and he's waving over to me. And I start yelling, I don't know what you guys are saying, but they don't have my paperwork. So I don't know what kind of garbage this is, but you guys better get this figured out. Of course, no one understands what I'm saying. And I'm really irritated. There's a guy, one of the four prisoners over there speaks English. He says, hey, homie, come over here and get you some clothes so you can get out. So now I'm really irritated and I'm walking towards this disorganized bunch of security guards that have no idea what they're doing. I walk back over to where there's a pile of clothes on the ground. The guard looks at me, grabs his shirt, holds it up to me and puts it in my hand. Another guy says, hey, he says, put that on. So he gives me this shirt. It's a blue shirt, it's got a big Nike swoosh on it. And the last thing I wanna do is wear anything that says Nike on it, let alone this smelly shirt. I want my shirt. Of course, my stuff that was put in a bag when I got booked has been given out to somebody else. They give me a pair of jeans. So now in my hands, I have a pair of jeans and a shirt. 
Now they push me with the group and tell me to walk towards the exit. We walk into a space between two locked doors and a cage on one side where there's a dispatch lady or the intake lady that's letting us out after she confirms the paperwork. As I'm standing in this space with about four or six guys, I now have to get undressed and put on these clothes because they've now uncuffed me. I put on these pants and they just won't stay up. They keep falling down and I put this shirt on. I'm a little sensitive to smells even after this whole experience and this shirt smells like pure death. I don't care, I'm just getting out of here. Of course, when I went for the shoes, they shooed me away and told me the flip-flops I were wearing were just fine. So now I get to leave with pilots busted up, broken down flip-flops. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes. Every time they see my name, it seems to be an ordeal and I'm getting really irritated about this right now. I just want to get out of here and go home. I don't even know what's going to happen when I walk out of the prison. They finally clear my paperwork and I go through. It's me and four guys. One guy won't stop talking. He found a friend he can speak English to. And this guy was on meth or something when he got arrested and he's talking a mile a minute, telling me all kinds of stuff. The guard keeps telling him to be quiet. I just want to get out of here. I don't even know where I'm going when I get out of here. I'm starting to get nervous now. They take us back by the booking area and I think I might be getting some of my stuff back. I don't get anything back. They keep us there for about two or three minutes. They open the gate and now we're in the lobby area where people come in to visit people. This area is wide open. There's those temporary shower stalls to the left that they strip search you in. The whole right side is clear with the exception of a handrail in the middle of a space that would divide a line that really serves no purpose. As we're walking through this space, I'm on the opposite side of the handrail that's about six feet long. The guard stops me, tells me to turn around and go around the backside of this stupid six-foot handrail in the middle of an empty space. One last power move, I guess, for this guy before I get sentenced to freedom. Now they bring us all to the door, they take our cuffs off, and they walk us out. The door opens, it's pitch black. You can hardly see anything. You're inside the area where they parked the van from transport. So there's about a 12-foot fence around the whole area that's corrugated steel with barbed wire at the top of it. They walk everybody to the back corner and swing open the big steel door. They walk out in the alleyway. I see nothing but a couple cars that are running, waiting for people, and I can tell immediately this is not a good neighborhood. As the door swings open and I'm standing there, I'm thinking to myself, how in the world am I getting home from here? There's three guys standing across the street, and one guy yells my name, waves me over, and starts walking. That's this loser from Baja. Man, I can't stand this guy. Short, pudgy, I could crush his face in two seconds. But he's got two guys with him that clearly look like they're up to no good. They're walking ahead of me about 10 or 15 spaces. I don't feel good either. I'm still sick from having food poisoning the past couple days, and now I just want to get across the border. We get into a Ford Expedition, probably late 90s, a real piece of crap. I'm thinking, this is what 70 grand buys you? This is the exit I get? 
We get in the car and the loser sitting in the back seat who stole my money tells me, you have a very strong wife. I don't even respond to him. I'm aggravated. I want to choke him. Do you want to go to the hotel, get something to eat and take a shower? I said, no, I just want to get in my truck and get home. Do you have my phone? He says, yes, hands me my phone. After about a 15 or 20 minute drive, we get to the hotel. I see my trucks parked in a red zone with my trailer connected to it and my Can-Am there. It looks like it was cleaned. As I get close to my truck, it looks like probably the worst wash job I've ever seen. The truck is filthy and the interior really stinks. Stinks like it's been in the desert with the windows open for a while. I'm really irritated and I gotta get these clothes off me that stink. So I grab one of my bags, I open it up, there's a pair of my shorts. I put my shorts on, they used to be kind of tight and they're about to fall off. I'm looking for a belt. I can't seem to find a belt. I change my shirt. That stupid Nike shirt that stinks goes in the bed of my truck, along with those women's jeans they had me wearing. I get in my truck, it gives me the keys. I said, I just want to get across the border. Okay, I'll ride with you over to the border. I can't stand this guy that's next to me. I don't want to talk to him. I'd like to kill him. But at this point, I don't even care. I just want to get across the border. I can't stand this. I text Megan. I tell her I'm getting ready to come home. I'll call you in a few minutes. So I'm following this Ford Expedition that has these two guys, which I'm sure are off-duty police officers that really aren't on the up and up because I think they have guns with them. So the guy who ripped me off is sitting next to me and we're driving and I've got nothing to say to this guy. I said, did you get my wallet? Was there any money in it? Of course, there's no money in my wallet. I didn't get my wedding ring back either. I don't care, man. I just want to get across the border. It's a Tuesday slash Wednesday night. It's just after midnight. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know how far the border is, but I'm sure it's close. As we're driving down the road, he says, okay, pull over right here and I'll get out. I said, is there any place to stop where I can get a drink or something like that? I don't even have any money. As I reach back into my computer bag to grab a phone charger, all I feel is clothes in my computer bag. That's when I realize everything in my computer bag was taken. I open my console. I had a watch in there. That's gone. I look around for all the other things in my truck, digital laser measuring tape, anything of any value was gone out of my truck. My laptop, my iPad, my Surface Pro. I brought enough stuff to do podcasts while I was down there as well as work while I was gone. All of it, every bit of electronics is gone. I find a busted charger in my console. I plug that in to get my phone some juice. I pull over to let him out. I said, you have any money for me or anything? Because I got nothing and I'm crossing the border. He says, I'll go get you something. So as I'm driving, sitting in this traffic, this line that seems like it's a mile long, he pulls back up in this truck, runs up to the window, hands me a Diet Coke and a pack of cookies. 
and gives me a $100 bill. Here, I'll give you some of my own money, he says to me. I think to myself, I want to kill this guy. What a scumbag. That's my money. Anyway, he's gone now, and I'm in this line forever to cross the border. Meanwhile, I get Megan on the phone. She's too scared to come across the border at this point. She's concerned that we're so close to this being done, she doesn't want anything to go wrong, and she's worried about her safety. I don't blame her. I FaceTime her from the car. She's excited to see me. I'm a little out of sorts because, well, I've just been in prison for 58 days. I've just sat in the car next to the guy who stole money from me, and I had food poisoning for the past three days. I'm not in the best of moods, and my head's still going 100 miles an hour thinking about things. As I'm approaching the border, I'm telling my wife my thoughts. And I said, I certainly hope they didn't plant anything in my truck, because that would really get me mad. My head starts going crazy, thinking about them possibly planting something in my truck. I haven't had a chance to check anything in my truck, and I know that people have been in here. Who knows? Maybe the guy's mad at me and wants to see me get in trouble on the state side as well. All I know is I just want to cross this stupid freaking border. I'm in line for about 30 minutes, and now I'm up. Next is my turn to come through the border. My truck, trailer, and my wrecked Can-Am are all together as I pull into the border. I roll my window down, and the guard says, what was your business in Mexico? I look at him with my military mustache and my shaved head, and I said I was just in prison in Mexicali for bringing a gun across the border. He says, startled, do you still have the gun with you? I look at him like he's the biggest moron I've ever met. And I said, no, they didn't give it back to me. He looks me out, looks me up and down, checks my truck. He says, go ahead and go to secondary. That's where they're gonna take your truck and search it. So now I'm nervous and my wife's on FaceTime. I said, babe, they just sent me to secondary and now my gut's starting to ache. I'm thinking, this is it. This is where I get in trouble again. I can see the border. I can see the exits 50 feet away from where I'm at. I pull to secondary. I tell her I'll call her back as soon as I get through secondary. She's nervous now too. We hang up the phone. The officer says to me, what was your business in Mexico? There's no reason to hide anything. Clearly I look like a prisoner with my shaved head and my little Mexican mustache. And I said, I just got released from the Mexicali Penitentiary for having a pistol with me. Do you still have the gun, he says? No, I look at him like I've really had enough of these stupid questions and I'm so annoyed right now. All I want to do is get back across the border. He asked me to step out of the truck. I get out with my flip-flops that are busted and I'm holding my pants up. So now, I stand there as he goes through my car with a flashlight. I'm looking at things as well, and I'm seeing that there's all kinds of stuff in the back of my truck. Remnants of the things that they stole that they didn't need that they threw in the back of my truck because they were conscientious thieves and didn't want to litter. They just threw the trash in the back of my truck. The border patrol looks over my truck for a few minutes and says, all right, you're good, go ahead and go through. So now I feel the sense of relief 
get back in my truck, I pull through that border, and now I'm in the States. Thank God, I'm back home. I call my wife. I'm headed towards the hotel where she's staying. It's in El Centro. I'm beelining it there. I've got a bad attitude right now. I'm really mad about this whole situation. I still can't figure out why I had to go through all that stuff, and I'm really irritated. I shouldn't be irritated. I should be happy. But for some reason, I'm just in a terrible mood. I don't know if it was arguing with the guards the last few minutes. I don't know if it's from not getting clothes. I don't know if it's from not having my flip-flops. Overall, I'm just mad, and I'm bitter, and I'm angry. And now I'm headed home, or at least to this hotel for tonight, because it's about 1 a.m., maybe a little bit after. I miss the exit to the hotel. That sends me into a little bit of a rage. I have to make a U-turn, get off the freeway three miles up, turn around, come back. I finally make it to the hotel that they're staying at. I pull through the parking lot, and I have to go literally around every single corner, and I still don't find any parking because I've got a truck with a trailer, and I'm irritated about that. I park it on the street, and at this point, I'd normally be concerned about things getting stolen out of my truck, but I really don't care. I'm irritated, I'm annoyed, and I just want to get home. I walk over to the front of the hotel where I see my wife. My son's videotaping me. My wife's really excited to see me. She kind of jumps up and starts running towards me and I have to stop her. I still have food poisoning. And one wrong squeeze and it's game over for me. So I do the only right thing to do and I go straight to the lobby bathroom. I come back. My kids are laughing at me because of my mustache and my shaved head. They're making jokes right now. And I'm just trying to get back into my regular space. For the past two months, I've been in a whole other world. And this is my crew. These are my people. And I still feel a little bit out of sorts. Everybody's just looking at me in amazement because I can't believe how much weight I've lost. I can't believe how I look with my head shaved. They don't understand why I'm wearing a mustache like this. We get up to the room. We get settled in. It's probably close to two in the morning. I'm exhausted, and this is really a weird experience. It still feels a little surreal. I still keep doing way too much thinking in my head. When I hold my phone in my hands, looking at the screen, I can't even read it. After not having my cell phone with me for a couple months, my eyes have gone bad. I can't even read the screen on my phone. We get settled in for the night and go to bed. Wake up in the morning, I assess my truck in the daylight. Probably the world's worst detail job ever. They washed it with a filthy rag. Every time I open a bag or look somewhere, it just sends me over the edge. Oh, they took that too. Oh, they stole that as well. Oh, it's nice they took that too. I guess it just wasn't enough. We go on the road, start headed for home. My son brought my wife down with my daughter. My son and daughter are riding in their car. And I'm riding in my truck with my wife. And we're headed back home. It's still a really surreal experience. 
I'm trying to get settled back into normal, but I'm still not feeling 100%. I'm glad to be home, or glad to be on the way home anyway. As we're driving home, somewhere around glamorous sand dunes, we're going through the rollers, and all I can do is stew over this. I'm talking out loud, and I'm going over the finances in my head. So I can't believe how much more they charged me and ripped me off, especially for this guy saying he was doing my wife a favor. We're still arguing a little bit over who was helping and who really wasn't helping. And I'm doing the math and I'm talking out loud. I explain to her about the fines and the fees and getting my truck out and the cost to get my truck out and all these things. And I said, well, for $70,000, he probably put in his pocket about 20 grand because after everything's said and done, it costs somewhere in the 40s to get me out of there. And then my wife says, no. She just starts shaking her head. I said, what? She said, yesterday they called me and told me I needed to wire them $20,000 immediately because you had promised people a bunch of money. You promised the doctor more money and you promised the attorney more money. I was just disgusted. So mad that they would just take advantage of my wife like that. It was all lies. There was nobody promised one more penny. I never talked money with anybody there, ever. As I'm driving home and I'm telling her the story about Ray and the last day, when I start to realize what was God's plan for me? Why was I supposed to experience this? What did I go through? And as I look back at everything that took place, I realize that maybe I needed to be there for Ray. As I look in the rearview mirror of those days that went by when I was there at prison, there's a lot of things that happened that was some divine intervention or a tender mercy of the Lord, making an experience less brutal than it could have been. Being able to talk to one of the guards about his heritage and tying it back to scripture and sharing those things with them. I look back at the time that I spent there and I realized that that experience changed me. Let me know that when everything falls apart, even when I'm clinging to my faith by my fingernails, that I would just want to share the gospel with somebody. And maybe that was the thing I needed to experience. I don't make any sense of it. I'd look at it as a circumstance that happened in my life, and I can look back and say that the way that I dealt with it was something I could be proud of. When I was backed into a corner and I had nothing else to look forward to, I at least looked to God for his hand in my life and had faith that he could somehow make this better, even when I thought maybe I was just pretending to talk to somebody that didn't hear me. In hindsight, it made my relationship with God stronger. I hope you've enjoyed this insight into my experience. In hindsight, I could sit and think of all the things I could have done differently, but none of that matters because it was my first and only experience that'll ever take place like that primarily for the fact that I'll never go back to Mexico. But more importantly, you can never look back at your life and think, what if I would have done this? Or what if I would have done that? None of that will change what happened to you. Look back at the things that happened and try to realize where was God and how did he help you? And as I look back at my life now, I can see that he was there the whole time. He took care of my family. He made sure things were okay and things were in place to be able to get me through this experience. And for that, I'm thankful. 
Thanks for listening to my story. As difficult and tough as it was, it was an experience that in hindsight, I realized I had to go through. I'd like to thank all those people that prayed for me and did everything they could to reach out to my family while I was away in Mexico. And all those people that were saying prayers while I was gone, I know that I felt them. This podcast is narrated by me, Bill Segrinos. Audio, editing, and music score is by Ryan Connect. I may in the future do some follow-up episodes to give you an update on what's going on with some of the guys from Mexico. Thanks for listening to my story.